Dear Lord, thank you so much for giving us this opportunity just to come here tonight and uh, worship you, Lord, and study your word, and just uh, be with Pastor Jesse uh, as he speaks through more of Galatians, and just give him the word to speak tonight. Just pray. Amen. We'll go grab one off that back table. There's a whole stack of blue ones. Um, you guys probably don't think a whole lot about this, but you don't understand how awesome it is to stand over here and hear y'all singing the way y'all are singing. That That is, it's... It's awesome. So keep it up. Y'all are doing an amazing job. It's just so much fun to watch you guys and hear you guys. Um, anyway, let's talk about what we're here to talk about tonight. Galatians. Now that I've said that, what book are we studying? Galatians. All right. Thank you. So I'm trying to I'm trying to make it easy for you right off the bat. All right. So if you have not been here, we've been walking through this book. We have gotten all the way through verse 14 of chapter three. So we are almost halfway through the book. We're going to finish up the first half tonight. We're going to go from verses 15 to 29. And as I say every week, when we're walking through a book, there's certain things that are helpful for us to understand as we walk through a book. So if you don't know the answer to these questions, that's okay. If you do know the answer to these questions, just shout them out when I ask the question. So let's start with this one. Who wrote the book of Galatians? Paul, yes. Um, do you know where he was and where he wrote it? Yeah, I have no idea. I just wanted to see if y'all would say jail because I've told you to say jail so many, often, so many times. So I, we don't know. We don't know exactly where he was. But Paul wrote the book. Do you know when we believe he wrote it? Like what time frame? For around 49 to 54 AD, okay? So as some of you have said on a regular basis, a really long time ago. Yes, that's exactly when he wrote that book, a really long time ago. Who did he write it to? That's right. The, the churches, it's in, in, the, in the Roman province, the southern portion of the Roman Empire, the province of Galatia. So it's not just one church, it's multiple churches that this letter went to. And what is the main idea of this book? Okay, so, hold on. You're answering two questions here. So the main idea of the book is salvation by faith alone, okay? That you can't do anything to earn the forgiveness of your sin from God. It is only through the person and the work of Jesus Christ that you can receive salvation. That's the main theme. Now, the why he wrote it, those of you who hollered out that answer, what was it? False teachers. Because in these churches, what happened is, is Paul was there and Paul helped with these churches and he helped set them up and make sure they knew what they were doing and they were understanding scripture correctly. But then as Paul left, other people started coming into this church who were teaching biblical doctrine, but they were adding to what Paul taught them. They were adding to what scripture says. Because if salvation is by faith alone, if it's only through the work of Jesus Christ, then that's all you need to be forgiven of your sins. But these other folks were coming in and they were adding Jewish tradition and, and Jewish law and Jewish customs and saying, hey, if you really want to be a Christian, yes, you need to trust in Jesus, but you also have to do these other things too, and then you'll be a real Christian. So Paul was writing to these churches because he wants them to understand what the heart of the gospel of Jesus actually is. That it's not all of this other stuff because he has an understanding and it's something that I hope you have an understanding of when you really grasp the gospel. When you know what Jesus Christ has done for you, then you know you are forgiven when you put your faith and your trust in him. When you hear it, when you understand it, you know what it looks like, which means when you hear something contrary to the gospel, you know what that looks like too. 
That's why Paul said all the way back in chapter 1 of this book, if anybody else brings you a gospel contrary to what you've learned, it doesn't matter if it's even angels that bring you a different gospel, you turn them away. Because nothing is going to contradict the word of God. Because that's who God is and God is consistent every single time. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to walk through the last half of this chapter and Paul starts getting really confusing because he's in the middle of the argument he started last week and he's talking about the law and he's talking about the promise and 430 years and all kinds of stuff. But don't worry, we're going to make sure we understand that before we get out of here tonight. So as we do that, I'm going to ask you guys to do what we do every week. In honor of reading of God's word, we're going to stand, and I'm going to ask Miss Laura Richardson to come on up here and read for us tonight. Come on up here, Laura. She's going to be on mic number two, if we can get that one turned on. Yes, right there. I just hope you know my nose itches. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Brothers, I'm using a human illustration. No one sets aside even a human covenant that has been ratified or makes additions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but and to your seed, referring to one who is Christ. And I say this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not revoke a covenant that was previously ratified by God, so as to cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is from the law, it is no longer from the promise, but God granted it to Abraham through the promise. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions into the seed to whom the promise was made would come. The law was ordered through angels by means of a mediator. Now a mediator is not for just one person, but God is one. Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that was able to give life, then righteousness would certainly be by the law. But the scripture has imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for having us here today. I thank you for letting us come on Wednesday night so that we can listen to Pastor Jesse preach your word, and I hope that we can all take it in and reflect on everything that has gone through the day. I pray that we can take this message in and really reflect it through our lives. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you, ma'am. All right. Y'all can grab a seat. So, did she do a good job? She did a good job. Nicely done. So, let's, um, let's back up for a minute, because as I said before, we're jumping right into the middle of this case that, that Paul is making. We're kind of jumping right into his thought process. So, let's go back just for a minute to what we talked about last week when we looked at those first 14 verses. In those verses, we found Paul addressing the Galatians, and what he was doing in those verses is he was urging them not to forget their own salvation experience. He's telling them, you need to remember that salvation, as we've talked about already, is by faith alone, and it's not through the works that they can do. It's not through the law. It's not what these false teachers were coming in and teaching them. Paul is saying, hey, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you need to go back to that moment, and you need to remember what God did in your life. 
You need to remember when you were forgiven, and you need to hold on to what that felt like and move forward with that. And in making that argument, he also does another step further. He says, hey, we're going to take it all the way back to an Old Testament covenant that God made with a guy named Abraham, and God made a promise to Abraham. And he points back to that promise because he's helping the Galatians see that God fulfills his promises. Always. You and I, we've probably made promises in our life, I know I have, that you haven't always followed through on. You've let people down. God doesn't do that. When God makes a promise, God carries out that promise every single time. It may not always be in the timing that we want it to be in, but God always keeps his word. And he's telling the Galatians, go back to what God did in your life, and you need to understand that the same God who made that promise to Abraham is the same God that you put your faith and trust in, is the same God that holds you for all of eternity because God does not fail on his promises. So that's what's gone on so far in this chapter, and we're picking up here where Paul starts talking about the law and the promise, and what we find in this passage tonight are two very specific things. Through what Paul is saying is we find that the law that he talks about points to Christ. And he's going to talk about the law over and over and over, but what that law does is it points people to Jesus. And here's the amazing thing, is that once you are looking towards Jesus, what you find out real quickly is that Jesus Christ is the one that fulfills that promise. So he's not just talking in circles. He's making a very important point here, and he starts it there in verse 15. Let me start reading that again. Verse 15, to give a human example. Brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Okay, let's start with this. Does anybody know what the word annuls means? What's it mean? It means take away from. It means cancel it. So he's saying right here, he's saying, hey, so all of us can understand it. He's bringing it down to our like third grade level after he's made this big theological argument. He's saying, here's a good example for you. If somebody makes a contract, you can't break that contract. Put it in modern terms. If you go to buy a house, I know none of y'all are worrying about that anytime soon, but if you go to buy a house, you sign a contract to buy that house, and that's a binding contract. Now, let's be real. We as people have found ways to back out of contracts, haven't we? Yeah, we have. In fact, in buying a house, maybe you don't know this, I'm going to teach you something tonight. In buying a house, sometimes when you're buying a house, if you're the buyer, the seller, the person who owns the house, they will ask you to put down good faith money. Do you know what that is? It's a down payment. Usually it's a couple thousand dollars. And they will say, hey, if you're going to enter this contract with me, you need to put that money down. Now, the, the seller doesn't get that money immediately. It like goes into a bank account, and nobody gets to touch it until everything finalizes. But that money gets put down. And you know what happens if that buyer backs out of a home sale? They lose that money. The seller gets to keep that money. See, we found ways to hold people to contracts because we found ways to get out of contracts. But for the most part, a lot of times, wills, contracts, all of those things, they're pretty legally binding. But think about this. As binding as the man-made contracts are that we make, as, as concrete as those things can be, and yet we try to find ways out of them. We try to find ways to, to weasel and not have to do those things How much more binding is a covenant or a contract that God made? How much stronger?
stronger is that? That's what Paul's talking about here. He's trying to help them see that the, the, the things that we do as people, we expect other people to hold to their end of the bargain, to their end of the contract. And he's saying, hey, if you expect that of other people, how much more can you expect of God? God who always keeps his promises. God who never fails. God who never backs out of his word. He's making it so that we can understand exactly what he's talking about. He's saying that if this covenant made between flawed, imperfect people can be binding, how much stronger is God's word? And then he goes on in verse 16. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. He's going back now to the promise. He's saying the promise that God made Abraham, that wasn't a promise that was made to Abraham and all of his descendants. It was made to Abraham and to his offspring. Now he's using that word in two different ways. In one sentence, he uses the word offspring to mean all the people behind Abraham. In the other sentence, he's using the word offspring to mean one person. And what he's telling us there is that promise that he made to Abraham was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. It was through Jesus that as as Abraham was told by God that the nations would be blessed through his line and through his children, Jesus is who God was talking about. It wasn't, hey, Abraham, your kids are going to be great. Your grandkids are going to be great. Your great, 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 all them kids down the road, they're going to be awesome too. That's not what God was saying. God was saying, hey, Abraham, the covenant I'm making with you, which by the way, Abraham didn't make this covenant with God. God made this covenant with Abraham. If you go back and read the scripture, Abraham was asleep when all this went down. So this was all God doing everything here. And he's not saying, Abraham, it's you and all of your kids and grandkids. Abraham, it's you. And through you, it's going to go all the way to Jesus Christ. And that's where the promise is going to be fulfilled. Because it's in Jesus Christ that the nations are blessed. It's through Jesus Christ that salvation comes to the world and anyone that would put their faith and their trust in him. See, he's bringing this down to our level and helping us understand it, but he doesn't stop in verse 17. Just in case you haven't quite got your mind around it yet, look at what he writes. He says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So that 430 years, most scholars believe that that was the time between when God made the promise to Abraham until he actually gave the law to Moses. You know, the Ten Commandments, the whole law, here's how you follow God, here's how you honor God. Scholars believe that's what that 430-year time frame is talking about. And he's saying, if God made this promise 430 years earlier, then when he wrote down those Ten Commandments 430 years later, that didn't cancel the promise that God made. Because the promise is still going to carry through. The promise is still true no matter what we do. So how in the world, let's tie this together, how does the law that God gave Moses, the Ten Commandments, and then later on all of the other commandments, when Jesus came on the scene, there were something like 600 laws on the, on, in Jewish society that people had to follow in order to be right with God. What does all of that have to do 
with the promise that God made to Abraham so many years ago. Because if the promise is fulfilled through Jesus, then what's the point of the law in the first place? Why is it even needed? Well, Paul answers that question in the next verse, 19. He says, why then the law? Why do we have it? What's the point? He says, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. He says, what's the point of the law of God if it has no impact on the promise of God? But you got to remember, God doesn't waste his time. When God does something, God always has a purpose for what he's doing. So God didn't just waste his time when he gave the law if he had already made a promise. If the law doesn't have anything to do with our salvation, if the law doesn't have anything to do with us putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, what he is showing us here is that the purpose of the law, it says it was added because of transgressions. The law made us aware of our sin. If you go back to the book of Romans, and Paul writes so many places about this, Paul talks about how he became aware of his sin because of the word of God, because of the law. It's, it's kind of like this. When you were a toddler, I know it's hard to imagine. Some of you were cute. Some of you, we'll see. <laughs> I didn't know you was a toddler, so I can say that. But when you were a toddler and you wanted something, what'd you do? You cried. What else did you do? What's that? You broke, you broke things? Had a meltdown. Had a meltdown. And I, okay, somebody said it. You snatched things. So you threw a fit, maybe you broke something, and you took what you wanted. Is that about right? Okay. Now, I'm hoping, prove me, prove me right on this, I'm hoping that your parents corrected that behavior. And it, hold on. Some of y'all need that lesson again. But when your parents saw that, I hope at some point they corrected that behavior. Which means maybe they got on to you. Maybe they popped your hand. Maybe they said, sweetie, don't take things that don't belong to you. Maybe. Some of y'all need a popped hand now. I don't know. But I know some adults that need that. But listen. Hey. Before before your parents told you that was wrong, you didn't know. So you weren't responsible for what you were doing and you weren't responsible for the consequences. But as soon as they told you, now you're responsible. You know it's wrong and you know there's consequences for it if you choose to do it anyway. That's exactly what Paul is saying right here. He's saying that the law was added because of transgressions. When Paul writes in the book of Romans, he says, it's because of the law, it's because of the word of God that I became aware of sin. What God's law does, what, what those 10 commandments do, what his word does for every single one of us is it reveals our own sinfulness in our lives. It shows us how far we fall short of God's standard. Because God's standard is perfection. God's standard is holiness. God's standard is obedience to his word every minute, moment, second of our lives. And the word of God shows us that we will never meet that standard. And what it does is it points us towards 
Christ. And then it goes on here in this verse and it talks about how it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And I, I like the way that he says that there because if you go back and you actually read Deuteronomy chapter 33 verse 2, you find out that when the law of God was given to Moses, there were angels present. So Paul's referencing that. And when he talks about this intermediary in Leviticus 26, 46, it tells us that Moses was that intermediary. God came, God gave the law to Moses. Moses gave the law to people. But in that, he's also making the point that God is the one that gave the law. It didn't come from the angels directly. It didn't come from Moses directly. They are simply the ones that communicated it to everybody else. God is the one that laid down the law. God is the one that showed us what his standard was in living our lives and it wasn't influenced by anybody else. And then he goes on here in verse 21. He says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. This is where you need to read Scripture through Scripture. This is where Paul has already talked about some of this stuff. And I'm not going to read the verses, but I'll tell them to you. Romans chapter 7, verse 12, Paul writes and tells us that the law is holy and righteous and good. The law is a good thing because it comes from God. And it tells us in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, that the law itself cannot give life. The law cannot bring salvation to your life. So what he's doing there is he's using these different chapters and these different verses to show us exactly what he's saying here, that the law does not give life, and if it did, then it would be through the law that we found our righteousness, that we found our salvation. And yet he says, that's not what happens. He goes on in verse 22 of Galatians 3. He says, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Scripture did not release us from sin. Scripture made our sin apparent in our lives. And he says, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Scripture, the law, makes you and I aware of our sin. And it's the word of God that shows us that lesson over and over. It's the word of God that shows us the sin in our lives. And it's the word of God that shows us the consequences of that sin. Here's the crazy part. When God gave Moses the law, Scripture tells us as soon as Moses got done writing it all down, he said, God, they're going to fail. God, they're not going to be able to keep your word. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 31 starting in verse 24. When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. He said, Take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all of the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands." Literally, as soon as Moses got done writing down the law that God gave him, Moses said, God, they're not going to be able to follow it. 
and their disobedience. It didn't surprise Moses. And get this, it didn't surprise God. It didn't then, and it still doesn't now. But that's why God's word is still important for us. Because as I said before, what God's word does, what the law does, is it points us to our need for Jesus Christ. And what Jesus Christ does is show us how God fulfilled the promise. See, they work hand in hand. In scripture, Jesus actually says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill the law. So they work hand in hand. We need the law. We need God's word because it shows us our desperate need for him and it points us to the only solution that is available through God. Look at what it says in verse 23. It says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come and we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. What he's saying here is life under the law, it's, it's like a life of slavery. Once you're held captive to it, you're trapped by it. You try to get away and it drags you back in. And as much as you don't want to do that sin, as much as you don't want to chase that thing, as much as you don't want to offend and disobey God again, you are drawn back to it over and over and over. And then all we think is that we can get to God through a list of rules. We can work our way there. We can do enough. We can be enough that God will love us enough that he will forgive us of our sin. And we quickly realize we fail every single time. That's a hopeless existence. That's, that, that's an exi- existence that's hopeless because it's impossible. It's, it's like this. You go to middle school, you go to high school. It is like you having to be aware of every single school rule that is in the student handbook. Some of y'all have never even seen the student handbook in your school. <laughs> But it's like you having to be aware of every single rule that is in that student handbook. Or at home, you are responsible for every single rule your parent has ever given you from the moment you were born until today. And you've probably gotten more than you can ever remember, forgotten more than you can ever remember. And you're responsible for every single one of those things all the time. And the problem is, as soon as you break just one of those rules, now you're guilty of breaking all of them. That's what scripture shows us. Scripture tells us, and that's what Paul writes about elsewhere in Scripture. He says, hey, if you fail at one point, you fail at all of it. And that's why Jesus matters. Because you can't work your way to God. You can't be perfect. You can't be holy. You can't be righteous. You can't be obedient on your own. It is impossible. But once you understand who Jesus is and what he's done that he laid down his life on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin, for my sin, that he took the consequences that we deserve. Chances are your brother or sister never took the punishment that you deserve for doing something wrong at home. It'd be nice if they would, but there's a pretty good chance they never did. But that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus took the punishment we owe or we deserved. Jesus took the consequences for our sins. 
And when you understand that that's what he did, that he laid down his life on the cross because of nothing you've ever done to earn it, but because he loves you. And because he wants you to have a relationship with him. When you grasp that, when you know that he rose from the tomb, that he conquered death, that he conquered sin, when you believe that, when you accept that, when you follow him with the rest of your life, scripture tells us, Paul tells us right there, there's hope and there's freedom in Christ. You go from being a slave to sin, trapped in your consequences, to living a life that is free in Jesus Christ. And now you have the opportunity to pursue him every single day. And that makes you a part of something greater than yourself. That's why it says in verse 28, it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That says we're united in Jesus Christ. Now, let me clarify there where he says there's no Jew nor Greek, no slave nor free, no male nor female. We still have different nationalities. We still have different cultures. We still have bosses and we still have employees. We still have male and female. Some people have made the argument that that's an argument against that right there in Scripture. That's not what that's saying. What that's saying is the gospel of Jesus Christ breaks down barriers. It's saying that there is unity in the diversity of everyone that has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That no one is better than someone else. There is no better Christian, lesser Christian. There is no stronger faith, weaker faith. There is an opportunity for us to work together to follow Jesus Christ and to disciple each other as we look like, as we find out what it looks like to follow him every single day but you can't earn that. You can't earn his love. You can't earn his forgiveness. You can't work your way to him because he already came to you. Jesus already paid the price. And all you have to do tonight, some of you, you need to stop trying to be good enough because you won't ever be good enough. And you need to rest in the fact that Jesus Christ has already lavished his love on you. And that moment that you put your faith and trust in him, do like Paul said to the Galatians, go back to that moment, remember what God did in your life, and cling to that moment and stop trying to be good enough for God. And just trust that God's already done what has to be done. Some of you in here tonight, you can't go back to that moment because you don't have that moment. You've never surrendered your life to him. You've never asked him to forgive you of your sin. Yeah, maybe you've gone to church for a long time and you can sing the songs and and maybe you can quote the Lord's Prayer and you can do a whole lot of other churchy stuff, but you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Maybe that's what he's calling you to do tonight. Whatever it is, Remember this, you will never be enough for God, but he will always be the only thing that is enough to sustain the rest of your life. And I encourage you and I challenge you to act on that tonight, whatever that may be. It may be talking to somebody about putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It may be talking to somebody about the struggles you've had and living that out. It may be, hey, I just need prayer Come to one of these adults and ask them to pray with you or one of your friends sitting next to you. 
Stop trying to work your way to God and rest in the fact that he holds you when you put your faith and trust in him. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. God, we thank you. We thank you for your law and we thank you for your word. And God, I pray right now that if there's anybody in here tonight, Lord, that they've not surrendered their life to you, not surrendered their eternity, God, they've not surrendered today. God, help them to know how much you love them right now. And God, I pray for every single person in this room, everyone who says they have a relationship with you, they've put their faith and trust in you, God, myself included. God, help us not to try to earn your love. Help us to rest in the fact that you've already given it, that you've already promised to hold us for eternity. God, help us just to rest in the fact that that you love us and you sent your son so that you can have a relationship with us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.